If you have your copy of God's Word with you, I want to encourage you to take it and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 18, and we're going to be beginning in verse 18 of Acts 18 and going through the end of the chapter, which is uh, verse 28. So we've been walking through the book of Acts, but let's just uh, uh, catch up for a minute where we are. Um, we are uh, deep into Paul's missionary journeys. You know, the first part of Acts really focused on uh, Peter, James, and John, those uh, part of Jesus' 12 disciples as, as the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and the church grew and, and we saw about Jerusalem and Judea and those surrounding areas. Uh, but for the last several chapters, we've been looking at the work of the Holy Spirit through the life of Paul and his companions. The first missionary journey he went out with, he took Barnabas with him. Uh, afterwards, before they went on that second journey, they kind of parted ways. Barnabas went with, uh, with John Mark, and then Paul picked up uh, Silas. And of course, there were many others uh, involved uh, in the work, and uh, most prominently uh, Luke, uh, the beloved physician who actually wrote the Gospel of Luke and this book of Acts. And so we just finished a couple of weeks ago before Bible school got started. Uh, we were... Um, looking at the, the time that he spent in Corinth, one of the longest times that Paul ever spent anywhere because he got there and, and uh, there was some opposition like in other places, but the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, don't worry, Paul. And we talked about everybody needs encouragement, even the apostles. If Paul needs encouragement, then we all need encouragement. And so he said, don't worry, Paul. I'm with you. I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed a long, long time, and, and everything was going well. But when there was a leadership change, uh, a, a new governor, the Roman Empire, put over that area, those Jews who opposed the Christian Jews and other Christians, uh, they, they saw this was their chance. And they tried to take Paul before Gallio, this newly, elected or this newly appointed governor of the area. And it backfired on them. Gallio said, this is none of my business. This is you talking about your religious stuff, not about Roman laws. It doesn't have anything to do with us. And in fact, those people who, um, who tried to oppose Paul, uh, the, the mob, the crowd that was there and ready and thirsty for the blood of Paul, they turned on the others instead. And, and Gallio just didn't even pay any attention. And so Paul was able to continue to stay uh, having been gone through that trial and came out and even the Roman government said, hey, there's nothing you can say about these folks. At that time, they were free to preach and to worship. So he stayed there a long time in Corinth. And then we pick up today with the aftermath of that. So I want to ask you if you would please stand now as we read Acts chapter 18, verse 18 and following. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. Then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters, and went nearby to Chentria. And there he shaved his head according to a Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. And then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews, and they asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. Then he set sail from Ephesus. The next stop was at the port of Caesarea. From there he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem, and then went back to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, 
Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia and visiting and strengthening all the believers. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he had taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila were preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. And when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that your word, as it has been read, would now work its way into our hearts and minds, transforming and changing us to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I began studying for the message today, reading this next passage in the book of Acts, uh, it's interesting. Some, some sermons, although they all take work, they all take study, they all take effort, some of them begin to form and to appear quickly. There's something very obvious, a healing, a, a miraculous release, a, a, a trial, of the growth of the church. Something big often stands out immediately. It wasn't the case with that this week as I read, just kind of some in-between stuff, like Paul finishing one place and traveling and going to another place. And in fact, um, Luke does a lot of summarizing here. Uh, Paul is actually journeying hundreds of miles across the Mediterranean. Um, He leaves uh, southern Greece, he goes over into Turkey, then he sails down there to Palestine, He works his way up through Jerusalem to Antioch, and then he goes back into uh, Turkey. And the areas that, if you remember on that second missionary journey where he wanted to go some places, and the Holy Spirit would say, no, don't go there. And he tried to go another place in Turkey, and the Holy Spirit would say, no, don't go there. And he ended up in, over in Greece, in Europe, because of that. Now he gets to go back and, and hit some of the churches there and encourage them and, and, and work with them. But the thing is... Um, I said, what, what are, what are the, what's God really trying to teach us here in the Scripture? Because in every Scripture, there is something. There's really multiple somethings that God is trying to teach us. And, and to me, I saw the monotonous but beautiful grace of Christian relationships. As I began to think about this passage, I began to see, while we may have just heard, well, this person did this and this person did that, and we might not see much in it that's big and momentum like a, like a healing, a miracle, a, a mass outbreak of, of salvation and people coming to Christ. There's something beautiful here that we can miss if we're not careful. And that is grace relationships. We're not perfect. <laughs> we've, uh, we've already talked about that. We've demonstrated that. None of us as believers or churches are perfect. We all have our faults and our flaws. And yet... There should be something in our lives that's different. 
In other words, we don't do Jesus' work with Satan's methods. We ought to live our lives not just to build the kingdom of God, not just to, do, to be good Christians, but we should do it in a Christian way, in a way that's touched by Jesus and His grace as the Holy Spirit works through us. And I want to focus in on two of the circumstances here and think, see what we learn. We learn about three things from the first circumstance and a couple of more things from the second one. The first thing we saw here was that Paul, first situation, he goes, gets on a ship, he goes to Ephesus. While he's there, the people ask him to stay. Teach us. Be there for us a while longer. Paul says, no, not going to do that right now. But if I have time later, Lord willing, I'll come back. And then he sails on with no more fuss or ado. What's the big deal with that? I see in here some ways of operating, some ways of behaving, some ways of communicating and relating to one another that are different from what we often practice because even as Christians, we often live in worldly ways. In this circumstance, number one, we see guilt-free recruiting. Guilt-free recruiting. Well, we joked about that, right? We're going to guilt some people into the choir. But, you know, God calls us to get others involved, to make disciples. And part of that discipleship process is helping people to stretch themselves, get involved in ministry, and, and be a part of working actively toward the kingdom of God. But we can, if we're not careful, we can get into manipulation. We can get into guilt. We can get into, you love Jesus, don't you? Well, here is the preschool Sunday school book. Bless you. <laughs> Bless you. You know, we, we can get into, you love me, don't you? Well, yes, I love you. Well, then you're going to do this because you love me. The world does that a lot. You see this in extreme forms and in cults where people, if you're a good Christian, then you do exactly what I say. You turn over your, your pocketbook to me and, and your calendar and, and everything that you do revolves around me, says some cult leader. And that's the extreme form. But even within regular, ordinary Christians, we end up often saying, you know what, we know the power of guilt and of shame. Those are not tools of Jesus Christ. Those are tools of the devil. Because God has forgiven us. God has cleansed us. He has taken the penalty for our sins on the cross. His tools are not guilt and shame, but grace, mercy, redemption, and forgiveness. Those are the tools of Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that we don't ever uh, hold anyone accountable. I'm not saying that we don't say this is right and this is wrong and this is something clearly that God's Word says we should all do. All those things are true. But I'm talking about when we want someone to behave in a certain way, when we want someone to do for us what we want them to do, it's easy to fall into manipulation. It would have been easy for this congregation at Ephesus to say, Paul, you know, we were counting on you being here years ago. 
And, and remember when you came over to, to Turkey and, and, and we knew you were headed our way and we, we got all excited and you were going to come and you were going to be here, but then you changed direction and you went on to, over to Greece and you spent a couple of years over that. And now this is our time, Paul. We deserve to have you here. Well, they could have laid on all the pressure and all the grace. And Paul, if you're really a good apostle, you know we would need you. They could have laid down all that guilt, but they didn't. They simply said, Paul, we'd like for you to stay. They just were honest and open. Please be with us. The second thing we see here that goes along, this is the flip side of it, is a gracious rejection. You know, as Christians, sometimes we need to know how to graciously reject people and say no. We have to be able to say, you know what, I'll think about it, I'll pray about it, and we come back to that point where we say, hey, this just isn't for me right now. I'm not saying that we get to that place like some Christians do, where it's a reflexive no. Every time anybody says, can you help with this, can you, nope, 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 nope. I mean, you know, that, that's like we just have a standard barrier around us where we're, we're not going to help anybody or do anything. And guess what? We all at times have to jump in and do something that's a little bit uncomfortable for us. We all at times have to jump in and do something that's a little bit out of our strength and, and, and talent area. And, and, you know, all of us have to do that sometimes. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about when we realize that over here somebody's asking for a thing, and it's a good thing. It's a wonderful ministry. It's a terrific part of God's kingdom. But we know that God has us going in this direction, and he's clearly told us this is what we need to do. And because we're on this track, we simply cannot join in what is being asked of us over here. And we simply say, no, I'm sorry. Can't do that for you right now, but no. Why did Paul say no? <laughs> it's kind of shocking you know, we, we've watched this pattern. I don't know if you picked up on it. We've watched this pattern week after week in, as he goes into a synagogue, as he says, as he argues or he reasons with the Jews in the local synagogues. He says, Jesus is the Messiah. And what's the normal pattern? Some of them believe, a bunch of them get angry and run him out, and he ends up staying in some other house preaching the gospel. Here, he goes into the synagogue, and instead of running him out, they say, Wow, Paul, this is interesting. Tell us more. We want you to stick around. We want to hear more. Paul was so confident that he was following what God wanted him to do that he was able to look and to say, I hope to be back, Lord willing. I'll try to get back to you. And by the way, he does. He does later on. We're going to see that. He spends a lot of time in Ephesus. But because he was confident and he was assured that he was going in God's direction, doing what he was supposed to do, he was able to say, you know, I'm not going to be here. I'm not sure who's going to be here, but I know God's going to work it out. And I can say no because I know God's got something else for me to do. And so with gentleness yet with firmness, Paul said no. Sometimes it's really hard for Christians to say no. And we take on thing after thing after thing after thing after thing, and we are just completely maxed out. And by the way, I'm talking about the minority, the ones who do most of the stuff. 
just like in any organization. Unfortunately, the church, that's not an organization, it's an organism. It's the body of Christ. It's a living, breathing thing. And we're all supposed to be active, just like every part of our body we want to be healthy and functioning. We're all supposed to be active, yet there are far too many people who say, nope, I'm just here to sit, soak, and sour. Leave me on my pew, entertain me with your song and your dance and your message, and then I'll go home and wait till next week. And that's not the right attitude at all. But that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about folks who love Jesus, who want to serve him, and they have stacked thing upon thing upon thing thing partly because they love Jesus but partly because they don't know how to say no they feel like a failure they feel like I'm sinning if I said no to this one thing that's way up here stacked on me and I want you to understand that God does not plan for you to live under that if you're at that place where you're already here and someone tries to stick on another thing God is not disappointed with you if you say no now, God may be disappointed in you if you don't go back and reevaluate. Maybe that thing that is the thing you're supposed to take. But God's saying you got a whole bunch of other stuff that you've let drag on you and wear you down, and it's not even your place. I've got somebody else who needs to do that. But you I need to be confident that you're doing what God wants you to do. And so when a new opportunity comes along, you can pray about it, you can think about it, and if God's in it, great. Add it to your list of things that God's having you do. But if he's not, you can look at that person in confidence and say, I'm afraid about it, but this just isn't where God has me right now. Maybe you can say like Paul, maybe in the future. Maybe there's another time I can do this, but not right now. Like I said, you may say, I can do it, but let me rearrange a few things. I got some stuff I got to let go of. But you and I need to be able to say, no, that's not for me right now. And here's the third and final part of that. Boundaries respected. Here's what's great about that church at Ephesus. When Paul said no, they could have started a campaign. They could have come up with a hashtag, lousy apostle. You know, they, they could have started something trending, something going about, oh, he's some big apostle. Well, he didn't do anything for us because he didn't do what we wanted him to do. But you know what they did? They respected that boundary. And that is a sign of Christian grace when we can freely ask someone to help us. And if they say yes, we're excited. But if they say no, we can still love them, respect them, and we can say, that's okay. You've said no. We still love you. Hope to see you again in the future. Paul does come back, like I mentioned. And he actually spends longer than Ephesus than he does anywhere else. He has a great relationship with that church. But do you think if they'd have looked at him and said, oh, Paul, and here we were thinking you were a real apostle. If they had downed him, if they had tried to guilt and shame him for saying no, you think he would have come back and spent all that time and blessed them in, in an incomparable way? Absolutely not. Because people do not want to live in guilt and shame. Like I said, those are tools of the devil. They are not tools in the Christian arsenal. They are not part of the armor of God. You and I need to learn to respect boundaries and expect others to respect our boundaries. All of those things in this circumstance, in this situation, to me, are signs 
of the grace of God working in our relationships. Now, folks, none of us are perfect about this. We're all going to mess it up. But this is where we ought to be going. Not, I'm working hard for Jesus, and if you love him too, you're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. Or, I love Jesus, and so I'm going to do exactly what everybody else tells me to do. No. We have one Lord and Master, and that is Jesus in heaven. He is our King. He is on the throne. We answer to Him, not to any man or woman. Are we accountable to one another? Yes. Are we in this together? Do we pitch in sometimes in difficult areas, areas that aren't our strength or things we aren't comfortable with? Yes, we all have to do that at times. But we don't need to be sitting here under a constant burden. And those of you who aren't working, who aren't serving, who aren't contributing. I'm not just talking financially. I'm talking about with your time and with your talents. How can you sit there and watch people be weighed down while you're on the sideline? You see, God didn't call any of us to be spectator Christians or sideline Christians. He called us all to be in the game. He called us all to be on the field serving him. Where that is, I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But if you don't know, you need to find out. Relational grace is also seen in a second story, a second situation. And that is with a guy named Apollos and with Aquila and Priscilla. Now, we met Aquila and Priscilla last time, two weeks ago, as we were going through Acts, and we found out that they were Christians who had left Rome because they were Jewish Christians, and the emperor had got mad at a bunch of Jews and kicked a bunch of them out of Rome. So they end up showing up in the same place where Paul was, and they actually happened to share the same trade or vocation, that of tent making. And so Paul got to know them through that, found out they were Christians, and they became co-workers, and they worked together and made a great team. And so the Bible says they stayed in Ephesus uh, after Paul went on. And uh, by the way, Paul had a vow to fulfill. We won't go into all that. But when he had cut his hair, he had, that vow had ended. But he had to get to Jerusalem quickly to finish that. And, and so he left his other companions there in Ephesus. Here comes on the scene a guy named Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt was one of the largest cities in the ancient world, about a quarter of a million people. And over a fifth of the people in that city were Jews. It just attracted a lot of Jewish people. Alexandria was known as a city of learning, of philosophy, of education. Apollo, somewhere along the way, we don't know if it was actually in Alexandria or somewhere else, but somewhere along the way, he went from being a believing Jew to a Jew who heard about Jesus. He had heard from some of John the Baptist's uh, followers about, hey, Jesus is on the, on the scene. He's the Messiah. And, and he even, I'm sure, had heard about his death and resurrection, but he hadn't got the whole deal, all about the Holy Spirit. And he shows up, and he's powerfully teaching and preaching in the synagogues about Jesus. And those who say Jesus isn't the Messiah, he said, oh, yes, he is. Look here in Scripture. And the Bible says he was powerfully refuting their arguments. He was powerfully reasoning with them. He was an eloquent man, a powerful preacher. And so Aquila and Priscilla were there, and they heard his message, and they heard the power in it, and it was great. But they also realized he was missing out on something. 
he really didn't have a full understanding uh, of uh, the Holy Spirit and how he worked in people's lives. And, and being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he didn't really get that because he, he hadn't heard the full gospel. He had just heard part of it. He heard enough to believe, but he was missing a few things. And the Bible says that they took him aside and they explained the way of God more accurately or more fully. What do we learn from this episode about relational grace, about how grace enters into our relationships with others. Number, number one, we learned that there is dignity preserved. The importance of preserving dignity. There comes a time and a place in all of our lives where we find other believers around us where there is a need for a confrontation, an intervention, or whatever you want to call it, but you know there's some gaps there. You know there's some things in their life that could be better if they understood a few things more about Jesus or if they remembered a few things more about the faith. And because you love them and you care about them, you want to help them out. How do you do that? You don't do that by getting on Facebook and saying, Boy, have you noticed how uh, Mr. So-and-so, he really is not the way he used, used should be and, and he's kind of awful. I am sad to say, I noticed on Facebook um, a few days ago, a church in another part of the state, and this church member was lamenting on Facebook basically about the sorry state of their church. And I thought, wow, <laughs> they mean well, <laughs> I, I, I hope. <laughs> I'm going to give them that benefit of the doubt. They mean well, but guess what? <laughs> Everybody in that whole community just heard about the sorry state of their church. And they weren't actually blaming one individual, or maybe they were, and I just didn't know what button they were pushing and who they were trying to get at. But I thought, that isn't the way. It isn't the way to call somebody out in front of everybody and embarrass them and humiliate them, whether that's online or in person in front of a bunch of people. There are times when we have to quote, set someone straight, although that sounds really bad. And if we're using those words, we're probably off a little bit. But there are times when we need to help some people along. But we need to do it in a way that preserves their dignity. There are times and places for public confrontations. But they're not the first step. <laughs> they are a long ways away when something has to be absolutely done in public and after it's been through a series of individuals and groups and prayer and time. But we don't just jump into public confrontation, calling people out. We preserve their dignity. Aquila and Priscilla could have called Apollos out, I'm sure, and he would have argued back and forth, but what would he have done? He'd have become defensive because that's what we all would have done. When people attack us or criticize us, we tend to get defensive. But they preserved his dignity. And the second thing here, or the fifth and the final out of all these things that we see in relational grace, we see a teachable spirit. Aquila and Priscilla, they acted the right way. They took him aside privately. They said, let's talk. We want to have you over for dinner. Okay, let's talk just a little bit about what you're preaching. Did you know that there's something beyond 
what you're preaching? Do you know there's even more? Isn't that great? And they explained to him. And, you know, even in their gracious manner, he still could have been defensive. He still could have put the walls up. I mean, there are times, there are places when no matter how, how careful you are, because people are prideful, because they, they just uh, refuse to take instruction, that at that point, you know, they get upset and go crazy no matter what you do. But Apollos did the right thing, and he had a teachable spirit. He could have said, oh, come on, you backwater folks. I am from Alexandria. I'm from the city of learning and knowledge. I'm an eloquent speaker. What do you have to teach me? But that wasn't what he did. What he did was he humbly listened, and the Bible says he became an even more powerful minister and speaker because he had a teachable spirit. And he took what was given to him and he incorporated it into his faith. I'm sure that he evaluated it. He searched the scriptures. He found out, you know, this is true. I never realized it before. And he ends up not only having a great ministry in Ephesus, but going on, the Bible says, to Achaia. That's that whole region of southern Greece. And we know later from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that he has a powerful ministry there to the Corinthians. And so Paul later on says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. So we know that God took the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Apollos, and he blessed them and used them to grow and strengthen the Corinthian church. We as Christians can talk an awful lot about grace Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And yet if we're not careful, we can operate in guilt, in shame, in legalism, in tying people down. And we can forget all that wonderful grace that was given to us. We can bottle it up and never give grace to anybody else. But that's not what God planned for us. He planned for us to take the grace that's given to us and to share that. And to show that in our relationships, because that's what they ought to look like. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you, God, that you had grace on us, that you had mercy on us. Father, without your grace and mercy, we'd be nothing. In fact, we would be destined for an eternity in hell. An eternity of suffering separated from the God that loves us. Not because you separated yourself, but we separated ourselves through our sin. But God, I thank you that you love us enough, that your grace and your mercy is enough. Lord, you are, as we sang, you are a wonderful, merciful Savior. You are a Redeemer and a friend. Lord, help us to take that mercy and to be channels of your grace toward our family, our friends, our co-workers, and all that we come into contact with. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Bless now this time of commitment. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.